Romans 12 this morning. So turning your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible, love to have you grab one right in front of you in the seat. Also love to just hear from you or introduce yourself by the card that's in front of you or on the city. Those are just ways that we're able to communicate and get to know prayer requests and get to know you and, and uh, all that kind of good stuff. All right, I want you to imagine, you probably don't have to imagine hard, but imagine you have a whole big plate of mashed potatoes on your plate and, uh, and you've eaten part of it, and of all the things on your plate, that is the star of the show, okay? The, mud, the butter's melted just so, uh, the pepper's, you know, popping, it's really good. You're about halfway through, and you see a giant pot of mashed potatoes uh, on the center of the table, and what you notice is other people are noticing how good the potatoes are as well, and you see them going quickly. What is going through your mind right now? What are your options? Let me just hear some of the options that you have as a mashed potato lover in this meal. What's going through your mind? Be honest. And what are your options? Get it now. Get it now. What does that mean? So, so, so how do you pull that off in, you know, in civil society? Elbows, okay. Civility is up for debate, right, of how, how we go with that. I mean, here's a couple options. One is to eat really quickly so you can get more. But oftentimes, you'll, you know, you'll want to take more, but you know that that's not really, you know, culturally acceptable. As a kid, uh, I had four, you know, there was four boys in our household, three three brothers. So, you know, you basically got while the getting was good with food. I mean, you ate and you ate quickly and you ate a lot, right? And if I ever asked for more mashed potatoes when I still had mashed potatoes on my plate, my parents, probably like some of your parents, would say this. Finish what's on your plate first and then you can have more, okay? Here's what I've discovered in life. It's more than just food we do this with. Okay. Ask the person who has 2,700 DVDs. Say, how many do you think you need before it's enough? And have you watched all those movies that you own? It may not be DVDs. It may be, you know, Imelda Marcos has a lot of shoes. She used to run the Philippines way back when. And uh, she has more shoes than everyone here combined times some number. I'm not sure what that number is. But she has a lot of shoes, right? She has tons and tons of stuff. And when you start thinking in your brain, like, what's really behind that? What's really going on when I collect that many DVDs? When I have that many shoes? When I want those mashed potatoes, even though I haven't even finished what's on my plate? There's a certain thing called the grass is greener over there. There's, there's some of that. All of us have this, this fleshly nature and desire to kind of grab and want more. You know, if one's good, 2,700 must be really, really grand. So it happens with food. It happens with stuff. This also can happen with relationships. And with relationships, if you are ever wanting new friends, new relationships, all of that, and you're not managing well, living well in the relationships you already have, you ought to ask yourself, where is that coming from? Why am I like that? What's behind that? Maybe it has something to do with the thrill of the new and just the hard work of the old. It's harder to build a broken relationship or a so-so eh, friendship than just to start a new friendship for some of us. And so what happens is you can do this. A lot of times people do this romantically. The thrill of the new is what they're just so hungering for. And the second the chase is over, what happens? Gosh, she's not really that cute. He's not so hot. I think I'll go find someone else. Listen to pop music. There's a lot of this going on. 
And to, and to ask kind of below the surface of what's going on with that. Why are we like that? What are we doing? Last week was this idea of ushering in in the month of September this, this notion of reaching out and welcoming in. And, um, and last week we started with within the church because God starts within the church. He says, love each other really well within this community, within this family. And so that's where, that's where we started. In essence, what we're talking about with, with mashed potatoes is before asking for more people outside in the neighborhood to come join what we're doing here, it's asking this hard question. Are we really loving each other well? Is what we're inviting them into a healthy, good thing for them? Or are we like a plate full of half, you know, empty mashed potatoes? We're like, let's get more. Let's just keep getting more and not handling well what we have. Remember from last week, the word proslambano. Remember that? That's this notion of reaching out and bringing them in. We're to accept one another as Christ welcomed us. So that's our example. Today we're looking at two words. How do we do this? And then just the word help, right? Because we need help doing this. This isn't something that just comes easily. But we're not yet praying for God to trust us with more until we, we have the grace from God to love well what we already have. Here's the truth. Every one of you this morning has brought into this building hurts and hang-ups and problems and joys and gifts and abilities. And adding to that is just going to be all the more complex, right? All the more difficult, all the more need that God's grace would be filling our lives. I was reading a, a, a commentary about this passage, and the commentator said something I really agree with, and that's what this morning's going to be about. We don't need fresh thinking in this area of how to welcome one another. What we need is fresh obedience. It's not that we don't understand what to do. It's not that we just have to learn some more. If we just went to a class on it, we'd be better at it. It's just fresh obedience. So I hope this morning is just, is just a fresh reminder and that God would allow us to be involved in some fresh obedience. Uh, yesterday I was involved in a wedding. I love being involved in weddings. Part of being involved in a wedding is you get to hear the engagement story. And this particular guy, um, I was kind of teasing him in the wedding a little bit because they were dating for four and a half years. So I said, man, your wedding proposal better be really good when you've had four and a half years to plan this thing, right? And it was. He planned a doozy. He roped in all kinds of people and it was this great thing. But it almost didn't happen because uh, the fiancé-to-be kind of started to figure out what was going on and her way of panicking was to lock herself in the car. So he had this friend on the bluffs of La Jolla go get her, and she wouldn't come out. She's locked in the car. I don't know what Tim's heart rate did when he heard that his fiancée-to-be was locked in the car. He hasn't asked a question yet, but I mean, he's got to be thinking in that moment, maybe I misread this. Like, maybe maybe the needle of affection, you know, is, is somewhere different on her scale than mine, but it obviously worked because we had a wedding yesterday. Here's what I, here's what I love about... Um, about people who were engaged. If you've, if you've been engaged before, think back to what it was like to be engaged. By the way, married couples, that's a really, really healthy thing to do. It's really healthy to do weddings. Because I stand up there and I witness people making vows, and of course, I'm taken back to making vows, to, to being in that position. But imagine what it was like to be engaged. For some of you who aren't married yet, um, imagine what it will be like. Imagine what you long for it like when you're, when you're engaged. When someone is engaged, I mean, think about who gets to set the rules about what is the appropriate level of, um, of love expressed to your beloved. 
I'll tell you what engaged people aren't thinking about it. They're not thinking about what's kind of the bare minimum that I have to do to, to get this girl, to get this guy to, to pay attention. It's not, it's not, you know, what's my duty? What, what, do I, what do I have to do, right? Instead, the sky's the limit. And engaged people, their, their, their brain is engaging. They're thinking about the person. But it's not enough just to think about your beloved. You're like, I've got to do something. This is an energy that has to be expelled. And so your, your, your mind starts to get wrapped around it, and your heart starts to get wrapped around it, and your will starts to get wrapped around it. And all of a sudden, you think it's perfectly acceptable to drive, you know, 23 hours across the country to go, you know, leave a, leave a, a rose on her, you know, on her windshield or something, and then drive back. You're like, yes. That was a well-spent 46 hours. Who cares what gas costs? That was worth it, right? How are we supposed to love our God? With all of our heart, mind, and soul engaged, really attentive, really involved in this thing. God says that we are now to take this this love relationship we have with him, and turn it on one another. Begin to love one another, welcome one another, accept one another in the same way that that Jesus has done for all of that. Now, rather than leaving it in kind of a Hallmark movie, ooh, ooey-gooey, that's kind of nice. We should all live engaged. What I want to do is I want to spend the rest of the morning just giving you some practical steps and walking through some things. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 9. In five verses... Okay, catch this. Catch the math here. In five verses, you're going to get 13 imperatives. 13, do this or don't do that. That's a lot. Each one of these that we're about to look at could be a sermon title in and of itself. And we could really start to dive in and see what the scriptures have to say about that. Instead, we're going to kind of fly at 10,000 feet. We're going to kind of look down briefly at these ideas. But don't worry. You have a whole lifetime of figuring out how to live this stuff out. Okay? So if you want to go to a succinct place in all of the scripture, to say, I know the Bible mentions a lot of one another's. I know there's a lot of actual practical uh, help for how we're supposed to be living and loving as Christians. Where should I go? Romans 12. Your house is on fire. You get to tear out only half a chapter. Tear out the back half of Romans 12, okay? You'll get it. You take this. You could work on this the rest of your life. This is a, this is a succinct power punch uh, location to figure out how to be loving each other. Here it is. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Now, we're going to stop there because those are all directed. This first little portion is directed at those within the household of faith, those already in the family of God. We're going to actually look next week, in the next two weeks, we're going to look at outside of the church. How do you reach out and welcome in? What are we supposed to be doing as Christians to reach out and welcome in? But we're going to pause here because this is all talking within the family. Love is primary, but there's a qualifier. It must be sincere. It must be genuine. Every one of us, all the time, are constantly making assessments about whether something is real or something is fake. My son ex- explained to me something yesterday, the other day about a YouTube video. And I, my first question was, yeah, but is that real? I mean, how do we know, right? Just because it was on YouTube. 
Someone tells you a story. You're sizing them up. You're like, is this real? Right now, some of you are looking at me wondering, is this guy for real? Because we do that with people. We size them up and go, huh, I wonder what this person's really about. All the time, we have these little sensors out if this is real or, real or what is fake. When you talk about sincere love and living life truthfully, here's, here's what I'd say. Talk to kids a lot. Kids have this ability to kind of sniff out truthfulness and fakeness kind of, kind of on the spot. I, th- I think they just don't overthink it too much. Yesterday at the wedding, I got to take Tegan, my nine-year-old daughter, and she, she got to, we got to go on a little fancy date. Okay, So we got to go do, uh, do, to this wedding together. And we are done with the, with the service and the ceremony. And uh, by the way, sorry, really quick, six things you're, you're going to write down. I've taken, 13, I've taken 13 imperatives, and I've boiled it down to six for you so you can have something to write down. Okay, so, so write down the first one and stop pretending to love. All right? So we're at the wedding. And we're there, and dinner hasn't been served yet, and we're sitting there with, with some, some friends, and there's kind of a lull in the conversation, and Tegan just blurts out, I'm bored. <laughs> uh, she's the youngest at the wedding by far, okay, 18, might be, maybe 16, 17, but she's by far the youngest one there. Well, a friend of mine, Victor, is across the table, and his girlfriend, Stephanie, she just cracks up. She goes, man, that is awesome. She's like, I love how kids just get to say. She goes, if I said that, it'd be really, like, uncultured, and I'd be looked down on for it, but she just gets to say it, so I... My date's bored. It's my job as the, as the person who's, you know, I'm saying, well, Tegan, let's make this more exciting. Say something funny. So all of a sudden, the conversation, which frankly had gotten kind of boring, it kind of buoyed up again, and it lifted, and we started off on a different direction. We're there, uh, you know, doing the, the thing, and, um, and at one point, she goes, we're in this beautiful place kind of out in Danville, and, and it's out on this ranch area, and she goes, I want to go for a hike. I said, well, my date wants to go for a hike. Who am I to say no? So let's go. So we walk out past the dance floor. There's kind of the bar set up here. And I just kind of walked by the bartender, like around the counter. And he goes, can I help you? I'm like, no, just going for a hike. And he didn't even know what hit him. So we just went right beyond him. And so here we are off in the pitch black woods hiking. Because that's what my date wanted to do. It was awesome. She just, she's at a wedding. She doesn't, it doesn't dawn on her. You don't normally hike when you're at a wedding. But she didn't care. Uh, we came across the meadow. My date wanted to test her skills about how far it would, how long it would take to get across the pitch black meadow and back. Well, I have a phone with a stopwatch on it, so I said, go for it. So she's off testing her speed skills off into the pitch blackness, and I'm here with my phone waiting for her to come back. She did. Uh, never mind that she's in fancy you know, shoes and a fancy dress and all that. So we got her time and noted it and celebrated, and then we came back to the table. Uh, at the table, there were some little s'mores, you know, party favorite kind of things. They were going to do a big bonfire later on. Uh, she couldn't wait. She knew we were probably going to leave before that. Uh, so unlike any other ge- guest there, she went and found a stick, opened up her s'mores thing, and she's now roasting her marshmallow over the candle on the table. I just, honestly, weddings are stinking fun with nine-year-olds. I'm like, this is just so, this has been a way better wedding because of, of you being here. After all the toasting, she looks at me and she says, Dad, at my wedding, we're going to have real toast. Because real toast is a lot better than taking sips of cider tons of times. I'm all... Good plan. Let's do that. I mean, just tons of bread and toast and butter, and maybe we'll add some cinnamon on it. So it's just fun going. And in, and in one night, a couple of hours of just having a date be nine years old, I just got to just go, wow, what a just kind of real authentic time with her. She just did what you want. There was no filter of saying, are we allowed to do this at a wedding? She just did it. Of course you hike and run and roast marshmallows over the centerpiece candle at a wedding. That's what you do. So how are we to love really well? There's a lot of people claiming to be experts on love. You have thought you were an expert on love before, and you were duped. You were wrong. 
All of us have been burned in love. Jesus shows us what the loving life is like. Just write down 1 John 3.16. Easy to remember, right? John 3.16, write a 1 in front of it, okay? Here's what 1 John 3.16 says. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can the love of God be in that person? And then he closes this little portion with this. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Number one, stop pretending to love. There's a lot of things people say that aren't in the scripture. They think it's in the good book. It's always kind of fun because I go, and you know, when you say that, I, I don't remember seeing it. Do you remember where that's said? And it wasn't. It was like Ben Franklin had said that or something. You know, and they, they kind of get it mixed, right? Just always quote the good book. Who can argue with it? Except when you're talking to a pastor who might, you know, I don't know if that's in there. Here's one that we say all the time that's in the good book. Actions speak louder than words. We've got a verse for it right here. Actions really do speak louder than words. Real love doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about what it's going to do or spend a whole lot of time rehearsing and remembering what it has done. Real love just does. It's this energy that has to be expended, and and it abounds. It does so more and more. As a Christian, we're to abound in love, grow in love. So here's my question for you, or it's really a fill-in-the-blank. Fill-in-the-blank just for you, not out loud, but just this week sometime. Think about this. I pretend to love when? I pretend to love when? Maybe there's a certain group of people that you just feel coerced into kind of pretending with. Maybe there's certain situations when your life gets in this stressful way or that way, you just slip into just insincere mode. You're just a pretender. I pretend to love when? And then to fill that in, just identify it, name it. And then follow it up with this prayer. God, would you give me the grace to replace these times of pretend with real, sincere love? So I'm going to give you a few more. But let me just stop here for one minute. If we get this first one, this first command is so foundational that if we get this one right, we are generally pointing in the right direction. So if you forget nothing else... Keep on this love one, okay? Because it's kind of like a foundation that all these others build on. Here's the second, second one. Hate evil and hold on for dear life to good. That's verse 9. Hate evil and hold on for dear life for what's... Uh, for uh, Hold on for dear life to good. That really is what is at stake is your life. Every day, not only are we sorting through what is real and what is fake, but what's good and what's bad. You know, every single person has some kind of a filter of what's good and what's bad. Our parents told us, eat this, it's good for you. Don't eat that, it's bad for you. And at some point, we're like, huh, I'm going to test that out. I remember in college eating a ton of junk food. I'm like, huh, they're right. That felt really crummy. (laughs) It was good going down, but coming back up, it's a lot more painful and not so fun. Turns out my parents were right on that one. But as we cruise through life, everyone that you ever meet, They are making assessments of whether something is good or whether something is bad. Some people have made an art form. They've lived their life to say, I'm going hard after everything bad because it must be good, right? 
So everyone's making these assessments all the time. Parents, uh, parents basically are instructed to kind of help their kids along with this, give parameters to this, but there's a point where we release them, right? If, you're, if your child is 48 and you're calling them up, making sure what they had for lunch, and it was a balanced diet, it looks like the backs of, of the Trix you know, cereal box with all the things. Somehow Trix fit into that and never figured that out. But there's probably a problem there, right? You, you want to release them at some point. But when they're young, they need help. Um, I've got a child right now who is saying two phrases a lot. These are two of his favorite phrases. And one is good that I want to nurture, and one is bad that I want to stop. Here's the first phrase. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you when they last happened so you can just hear how, how frequently. Yesterday morning, I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm reading. And out from around the corner comes little Eli, who will be three in a few days. And he comes around the corner, and here's what he says. He goes, Daddy, you so handsome. And what's even cooler is he looked like a minion when he said it. I actually just had to stop and take a picture. I'm like, and so what we, do, we have this little thing. I go, no, you're so handsome. He goes, no, you're so handsome. So we go back and forth with this. That's a good phrase, right? I mean, he could say that 300 times a day. I'm good with that. It warms your heart like nothing else to have a little three-year-old tell you that. Now, he's got another one. Here's his other one that he says all the time, okay? Daddy, can you please not lock it? Daddy, can you please not lock it? Now, without any context, that doesn't really mean anything to you. But, but we have two psychotic toddlers that live in our house. And what we figured out is at nap time, it's way better to have the lock turned from the inside of the room to the outside of the room, okay? Because if it's on the inside, they would constantly lock themselves in there, and then they have time to devise plans. It's really scary, actually. So we switch the locks on them, because we know how to do that, and they don't. They're only toddlers. So now at, 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 um, at nap time or at night, their plea is, Daddy, can you please not lock it? Can you please not lock it? And so my response is, if you stay in your room, I won't lock it. And it works pretty well. They, they really want that. So why this is bad, though, is that this could be, you know, out in public, this could be misread, right? You know, as he forms the sentence better, Daddy, please don't lock the door. I'll be good. Daddy, please don't lock the door. I mean, that's a bad phrase. You don't want that going on. By the way, the last time he said that, for the record, 106 this morning, okay? That's how often it's said. You know how you remember exact times when you're woken up from sleep? You're like, 106. Daddy, can you please not lock it? So here's what I've decided to do. I'm going to pay him in popsicles every time he says, Daddy, you so handsome. I'm just going to give him a few popsicles every to kind of nurture that phrase, and then I'm not sure what I'll do yet with the other phrase. Um, so so we, we have this thing in this life of faith where we see dimly. Wouldn't it be great if we always saw what was really good and what was really evil? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we just saw that laid out before us super clear? If you've ever been around real evil, you wouldn't flirt with it. Play. It's terrifying. You don't want anything to do with it. But the Bible says this. We see dimly now, kind of like looking through a mirror. So, so what happens is we don't have the full scoop. So we get around people we think they're good. They're not good people. They just aren't. And then there's a wake of destruction that goes around that. We get into a business deal. We get into, into a school or into a church or some organization. We go engage in this activity, and, and we think it's good. We, we, we had our good and bad filter. We're like, I think that's pretty good. And then it ends up being something different than that. Jesus invades people's lives, and what happens is when that happens, you begin to see life for what it really is. 
There's an enemy that wants to rob our life, and he begins to be exposed for who he really is. And we begin to actually have power to break free and walk free from those things that are bad. My question for you is this. Do, do you have a growing distaste for the stench of evil? Not just the life-robbing effects of it, because there are sort of, sort of some effects of it, but imagine smelling something really bad. You don't go, wow, I think that's bad. Yeah, it's bad. You know, by this point, you're crying. What you do is you take one whiff, and I mean, have you ever just, if someone's closing the fridge that quickly, it's bad. I mean, it's really bad, right? You need to get something. You need to seal it up. Get that out of here. I wonder if we could just pray, God, would you, would you allow evil to be like that for me? Would you allow it to, to be something that, that just is a, is a stench in my nostrils? Would you allow it to just make me flinch and want to get away from it? The second part of, of verse 9, uh, here, Josh, could you hold this for me? Uh, the second part of verse 9 um, says, it says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Some of you in this room may have a story where, where you were saved by a life ring, by a rope, by a friend's hand, uh, by a tow truck, by something. And if you've ever been spared your life in a moment like that, you will never, ever forget it. You'll remember that for the rest of your life. The Bible says that good is something we should cling to. Abhor what is evil. Get away from it as quickly as you, as you can and cling to what is good. Here's what I fear. Um, some of us, he put it down. That's, that's even more illustrative. Thank you, Josh. Some of us cling to, to good like Josh was doing with this string. Okay, This string is very, very optional to Josh, evidently, because I told him to hold it. He couldn't even do that. After a while, he's like, this is lame. So he just puts it in his lap. Right? Some of us view good about like this. Cling to what is good. Eh, all right. If it works for me. I'll cling to what is good. But we don't see good as a life-saving rope that we just go, lay it on me. Give it to me. I'm all in. I'm on this thing. Instead, we see it like an optional piece of string, and then like, like Josh, we disrespectfully just put it in our lap, right? It's kind of there if we want to pick it up and fiddle with it, but it's not really there to save our life. Here's my question for you. How is your grip on good? How's your grip on good? Maybe a second question is this. What's your view of good? What's at stake by not holding on to good? Is it optional, like, like the piece of string, or is it something that really matters? Here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. You can just write that down. You don't need to turn there. But here's Paul like a father. Remember last week it was the strong serving the weak, the strong in faith serving the weak. It's on the, it's the, the onus is on the strong. Here he says this, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Did you catch what he says? He's comparing him being like a father. A father who urges and pleads and challenges and comforts. How often? Once and then he moves on? No. All the time. Why does Paul talk this way? Because he knows what's at stake. Man, their lives were at stake. 
So it wasn't just preach kind of a nice sermon and then have a nice lunch and then off you go. He says, no, like a father does. I mean, there's, there's giant things at stake here. So sometimes I come and I urge you. I kind of, I kind of challenge you forward and spur you on. Other times I comfort you. And other times I just plead with you. Would you listen to me? There's giant things at stake here. The third thing is found in verse 10. It's just to love well. I want you to write two words under love well if you're taking notes. Write the word affection and write the word honor. He mentions both of these. Love well by being affectionate. Now, I know that for some of you, brotherly affection might have to be redeemed a little bit. It might conjure up some different kinds of images than you think are scriptural. Uh, two of our brothers in our family that we raised, uh, one decided to crush up snails and put snail gel in his brother's hair, right? Is that what the Bible's talking about? I had a brother who played a trick on me by giving me black pepper gum. My oldest brother was giving me something. That was brand new experience for me. I thought, of course I'll take it. Ended up eating it and throwing up all over the car. Is that the kind of brotherly affection we're talking about? You know, what kind of brotherly affection? What does that mean to have brotherly affection to someone in the faith? Write down a second passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul just was describing himself like a father. Now he describes himself like a mother. See the picture? The strong serving the weaker. It's the parents serving the younger, nurturing the younger. Here's what he says. Both times he uses the word we, by the way. This is just a little snapshot of, of, of plural leadership, not one person doing this. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Being so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives, because you had become very Dear to us. Paul is saying that brotherly affection is needed, fatherly affection is needed, motherly affection is needed. Do you see the the, the giant range that that covers? That covers a lot of range. And we need all of that in our lives. Showing affection to people takes attentiveness and creativity. Something that might communicate affection to one person doesn't communicate affection to another person. It's rather off-putting to that person. So letting our words be seasoned with grace to build other people up would be to know those differences and to pour out affection in ways that's pleasing to them. I know that, well, I'll tell you what, flip open to, to Romans 16. Look at Romans 16. Here's Paul saying the word greet or some variation in your translation, 16 times, or excuse me, 22 times in one chapter. I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible or you have a reading program and you kind of get to these greetings. Greet this person, greet that person, tell this person, greet that person. You might kind of like check out this point. Well, this isn't really like devotional stuff. I'll just kind of skip this part. Why did God see fit to have an entire chapter almost of greeting? Why at the end of almost every letter does it say, greet that person with a holy kiss, check in on their health, all these different things? Might it be as an example to us? Here's Paul, type A, driven, bold Paul. If anyone had an excuse to say, look, I'm a busy guy. I manage like hundreds of churches all over the place. Just greet everyone. Maybe it'd be him. But instead, by name, he's calling out people. Hey, greet these people and the whole church that meets in their home. Hope they're doing well. Greet that person over there. He even says sometimes some instructions. Hey, these two aren't getting along. Uh, 
see that they're one in the Lord? How do you get to know? How do you get to do all that? It's just relationship. It's time to be able to know individually people and be able to, 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 to greet them that way. Life isn't always just Hallmark card greetings, though, where we're just kind of right, you know, tacking it on at the end. How do we show affection for someone who's, who's in sin, who's offending us? The Bible has answers for that too. Galatians 6, verse 1. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, listen to this, listen to how the affection is supposed to go, strong to weak. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And then some instruction. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Let me get really practical for a second. You know how you can begin showing affection and loving well right here in this room? One thing. Just simply begin to listen better. If you listen better to people, here's what happens. You ask a question. Mark, how are you doing? If I really listen, you know what I'm going to hear? I'm going to hear some different things. Mark might say, I'm really hungry. Mark might start talking about a dream that he has or something he's super excited about. Mark might just start talking about a preference that he has. If I'm really listening well to the question that I just asked Mark, I'm going to start to get to know how to speak into Mark's life and be a blessing to Mark. With creativity, we could begin in this room to start just meeting each other's needs simply by listening better. There's not a shortage of needs. There's not a shortage of dreams to help fulfill. There's not a shortage of these things. There's just a shortage of people really willing to see and then act on them. That's a part of what loving well is all about. I'll tell you what helps facilitate this, but if it stops here, it's dead in the water, is our midweek community groups. That's a great, that's a great launch point for that, because that means you're forcing yourself, you're scheduling in your week, I will be there at seven o'clock on Thursday night. And then you show up, and then you're like together, and then all of a sudden you're, you're having these things go on. But let that just be kind of a starting point for other things. All right, the other word he mentions is the word honor. Love well by showing honor. There's some really competitive people in this room. I know you, and I'm looking at you, and, and you're just competitive. And that's fine. What if we took some of our competitive juices and the ways that we're wired, and we just turned it into what this verse says? Outdo one another. Competitive people are like, oh. Outdo one another in showing honor. What do we normally outdo one another in? Trash talking, sports, business, relationships, whatever. I'm going to do the most and best, and I'm going to do it better than you. What if we flipped the whole thing on its head and said, I'm going to outdo you in showing honor? Wow, that would be a different culture, wouldn't it? Instead of having like fantasy sports leagues and poker leagues and, and these other kind of leagues that are there, none of which are bad in of themselves, what if we had like this league of honor where you enter in and there's like, I'm still tinkering with this, but like Friday night cage fights, but somehow you're trying to outdo one another in showing honor. Again, it's, 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 it's a work in progress. But we can have a whole league with that. I mean, trading cards, right? Stats. Outdo one another in showing honor to other people. Communicating affection and bestowing meaningful honor to other people 
It takes something. It just takes consistently being with people. We live in a crazy valley. People move in here and move out of here all the time. People take that and translate that into relationships sometimes where they kind of move into a place and check out to a place all the time. One of the things that, that just takes for community to build is just consistency. Just staying put long enough through some good times, through some bad times, and then you come out the other end and you say, wow, we're actually in community. We're actually in a relationship because we stuck around long enough. There's kind of a side benefit to, to loving well. Francis Schaeffer um, said this. He was a Christian thinker and apologist. He says this, Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. And then he says this, Christian community is the final apologetic. You know where he got that? He stole it from Jesus. They'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Some of you are going to muster a new kind of courage next week and invite someone to church. This whole month is about reaching out and welcoming in. Far be it from us to have someone who says, man, I'm going to take a giant leap of faith. I talked to someone right over here mid-service. She said, man, it's a huge step for me to be at church today. I said, man, well, it's so awesome that you're here. I mean, if we didn't have second service, I would, we should have just thrown a party for that. But far be it from us to invite someone in. They finally take that step of faith. They show up. And it's no different than the gym that they work out at. It's no different than their office space. It's no different than other social settings. They're kind of there, but they're not really loved on. They're not sacrificially sought out. Love well. Here's number four. Shut up the slacker in you. That's verse 11. You start walking the Christian life, you will be tempted to quit often. Don't. Don't do it. There's a guy in the Tour de France. He's the oldest guy in the Tour at a ripe old age of 42. That hits close to home. They always talk about this old man. and How can you do this year after year, ride the Tour de France at your you know, decrepit age? Again, I'm always a little offended when I hear this. You can guess my age. Um, he's a German guy. And he says this. He goes, uh, they, they go, how, you know, what do you do when, 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 you're, you know, when, you're, when you're hurting? And how, how do you get over these mountain passes and all that stuff? He says, it's easy. I just tell my legs, legs, shut up. <laughs> so he's become known over the past couple of years. I think he might have tattooed it on himself now. Or it was on his bike at least this last year. It just says, shut up, legs. What are your legs saying when you're riding the Tour de France? Stop! Yeah. A little help. Like, knock it off. It's really painful down here. Shut up, legs. There's a slacker in all of us. There's a slacker that says, lose your zeal. There's a slacker that says, knock it off. Stop. It's easier if you just stop. Shut the slacker up. That's the message. Don't do it. I'll tell you what's even more deadly than outright quitting. If you outright quit today from church, I will probably notice you're gone. Someone will probably notice that you're gone, and we'll come after you. If you do not show up, we will come after you. We just will. We'll notice it, right? I'll tell you the more deadly position. The more deadly position is this. You don't outright quit. You just stop pedaling. You just start coasting. That means you show up at church. That means you take communion, you do the prayer, you stand up, you sing the songs, you open the passage, 
All the while, lukewarmness is setting in. Coasting is the norm. You know what that breeds? Hypocrisy and status quo. You know what happens when you get an entire church full of hypocrisy and status quo? Go visit a lot of churches in Europe. I haven't been there, but I've talked to people who, about the Christian faith who live in Europe, and that's their perception of the whole Christian faith. It's, it's shell. It's just doing these religious duty kinds of things. That's even more deadly. And that's why Jesus was so incredibly harsh with the hypocrite, calling it out. That's lack of sincerity. Don't be here to play a game. I told this person who was here, she was expressing to me how it's not always the most fun to come to church. I told her, yeah, I agree that sometimes. She goes, oh, like you're the pastor. You're not supposed to say that. Here's what I told her when she left. I said, I hope to see you next week. But if I don't, I won't judge you. I'd rather you come for what you said you came today to really seek after God. Don't come to just, you know, to just kind of play that game. Romans 12.11 says, Never be lacking in zeal. Be fervent. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You know the way you don't quit? You choose not to. And then you get around other people who are choosing not to. So that when you stop pedaling, they go, hey, get up here. You stop pedaling, man. You're going to go, you're going to drift back and you'll be gone in a heartbeat. Get around other people. Kill the sloth in you. When the sloth speaks up at community group, someone in group ought to call that out and say, uh-uh, that's not the way we're supposed to live. We have a common agreed standard upon here. That's not, that's not allowed. Shush that slacker. I need that as much as you. People getting around together and speaking truth into your lives. There's an example in the person of Epaphras. Colossians 4.12 says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. There's that sincere love. Hey, make sure you tell him I said hi. And then it says, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You ever wrestled in prayer, not for your own troubles, but for someone else? wrestled in prayer is how a translation puts it. I mean, really wrestled in prayer on the behalf of someone else. That's hard work. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness, this is Paul writing about Epaphras, giving testimony. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras must have been a guy who said, shut up, slacker. I'm never going to stop doing this. I'm fervent in spirit. I'm going to serve the Lord. And then somewhere along the line, a guy named Paul says, I take notice of that guy. That guy's a hard worker. He's still at it. I'm going to encourage the church. He's a good example to follow. Here's number five. Never forget where we are going and how we'll get there. Verse 12 talks about three things. It talks about hope, tribulation, and prayer. Rejoice in hope. Paul's already talked about hope a couple of times in this book. Chapter 5 and chapter 8. He's pointing them forward. This isn't all there is. We're not living for temporal stuff here. There's an inheritance waiting for us. Rejoice in that. Then he brings up tribulation. Remember how we're going to get there? It's through fire. The word tribulation is a big fancy spiritual word for ugh. This stinks. I hate this pitfall. 
I am in tribulation, right? We don't usually call it tribulation. It's got a lot of other names, some of which I can't say in church. But it's not usually called tribulation. You know what the instruction is for us as Christians? Be patient in it. We're going to get there. We're going to get to the promised land. It's going to be through fire. Some of you haven't just had a bad day or a bad week. You feel like, man, I've had a bad life. Tribulation after tribulation after tribulation. You know what I'd say to you if you're a Christian here this morning? Hang on. Be patient in it. If I could take this string and and somehow map out eternity, you know how long your lifespan is in this? It's but a little whisker. Width. That's it. Hold on. You're in the birth pangs right now. Joy is coming. Finally, he mentions prayer, to never stop praying. This is a huge means of provision for God. To think about the fact that there are, there are untold riches, untold amounts of perspective and wisdom for our troubles right now available to us in prayer, why would we not pray? I heard someone say this week, I believe in the power of prayer. You know why I knew he wasn't blowing smoke? Because he was on his way to an errand. He saw mine and Ben's car here. He stopped in for the express purpose of praying with us for about 10 minutes before he got back in his, on his way to his errand. His actions spoke louder than words. He doesn't just say he believes in the power of prayer. He stops his car, gets out, prays, and then gets back in, and then he goes on his way. He lives what he says. He really does believe in the power of prayer. So pray without ceasing. Rejoice always and pray constantly. Literally, don't ever stop that. Don't ever stop those two activities. Do you know that we can rehearse this reality that we just talked about in community group every week? We can do this around the dinner table. We can just do this as Christian friends. Hey, there's hope coming. I don't want to minimize your hurt and your pain, but this is not all there is. It's going to be there with with trial. In this life, you will have troubles. That's an understatement, right? But guess what? We get to pray about it. Here's number six. Number six is hunt for ways to share and welcome in. The word share around here is kind of a double ring to it. We're to share the gospel. Paul just said, man, I, I loved you so much. You become so dear to me. I didn't just share the gospel, which is the most important message in life, but I shared my very life with you. My stuff, my time, my affection. That's what we want to do too. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example to what we're talking about. Can you imagine the impact of of this going on here in this place in a greater degree? I mean, we've just been reminded from Scripture that we're to reach out and welcome in. We're to be welcoming and loving each other in a way uh, that, that Christ has loved us. What would that look like if we, if we just really started to walk in that? I, I think we are. I, I look at a group of people, most of whom I know, you are praying, God, form your will in me. Form your will in my family. Form your will in our church. Man, this is going to have an impact, not just on September, but on this, on this church culture. And as Christians start to love in the way that they're called to love and that they're empowered to love, that really does begin to change a city. Last week's call was reach out and welcome in. Let me show you how simply what I did with, with the how and the help part. Okay, We were in Romans 15. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 
this whole week has been, well, great, how do I do that? You know what I did? I just stayed in the Bible. I just stayed in Romans. Romans 12, 9 to 13. I didn't take you to a seminar. I didn't take you to a fancy book. I didn't take you to 12 steps or any of these other things. Right under our nose, probably on your nightstand or in your desk, every day of the week are some, are, are, is, is God's plan for how to do this. It's probably in your pocket, in your phone right now. The scriptures. You want to know how you're empowered to do this? Go to John 15. Just read John 15 today. It's right there in front of you about how to pursue this. God, I feel helpless in this. Every time I try, people just tick me off. What is that? Can you help me with this? Every time I go to open my mouth, I just can't quite overcome my own insecurities, and so I just keep quiet. I long to walk in this. Go read John 15. Let me invite the band to come on up. Just like the answers are hidden in plain sight for us, I love how Jesus boils things down to utter simplicity. Think of what he could have left us as the, as the New Testament church. Have you ever read the Old Testament? The Old Testament Jewish religious system, it's pretty complex. You need like a doctorate to understand all that's going on. Here's what Jesus comes along and says. Hey, follow me. That's an invitation. Get baptized into the family. This is, an, this is just an outer sign to say you're in the family. And then share a common meal regularly to celebrate and participate and call out the fact that I'm coming to you again. Would you do that? And then just love one another. That's pretty easy, right? I see some nods. We get that. Follow me. Check. Get baptized in the family. Check. Share a meal regularly. Love people. Yeah, got it. I still got room on my paper. I can do that. Lord, help me. Let me pray. Father, we need your help this morning. God, we thank you for bringing us here, for getting us uh, here safely. We thank you for your word, the way it instructs. I pray, Father, that even now as we sing to you, as we reflect on you, as we celebrate your greatest work and achievement, I pray that you'd move in us. God, I pray for the dismissal of this service, that we would purpose in our hearts to proactively welcome one another the way that you have welcomed us. We thank you for that and celebrate that now. In Jesus' name, amen.